This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 8, verses 22 through 39. We'll begin on page 865 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. Luke, chapter 8, verses 22 through 39. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. It was kept under guard. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding countries of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, New City. My name is Zach Meyer, and I'm one of the pastors here. I uh, primarily work with uh, the youth. Uh, If we haven't seen each other in a while, they didn't hire a new guy. I'm just a little hairier. Um, But this morning, we re-enter into our uh, process of working through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, What we have seen so far in the Gospel of Luke is that the disciples have been on a crash course with Jesus. Having been enamored by him, putting their hope in him, They've been called to follow him. And along the way, they've seen some pretty weird stuff. For example, just during this winter period of of what we've been looking at in the Gospel of Luke, uh, they and we have seen Jesus uh, heal somebody from the brink of dead, uh, resurrect somebody who is actually dead. Uh, Also, we've seen Jesus comfort John the Baptist in his doubt and also break social norms by welcoming a prostitute 
and by uh, confronting a self-righteous Pharisee. Also on top of that, we also see Jesus proclaiming some awkward teachings about lamps and jars, and he also kind of puts on a spiritual gardening clinic about how seeds grow in different soil. And despite all this oddness, the disciples and we ourselves have been shown Jesus' power, his goodness, his gentleness, his wisdom, and also the truth and love in everything he does. We have seen somebody who is truly divine. Now, up to this point, the disciples have experienced some loss, right? They have left their careers, their families. They probably lost some social standing to come follow this Jewish rabbi. But today in our text, we see that following Jesus also entails the risk of storms. There's an actual risk involved. Storms in nature could be uh, crudely but maybe aptly described as kind of two or more weather systems colliding together and creating chaos until there's a resolution that's reached. Uh, Contemporarily, we also use storms kind of as a phrase to describe conflict between two people, maybe conflict within ourselves. And in today's text, we actually see both of those, not occurring separately, but all at once, almost a cosmic storm that crashes into human bodies and souls. And the disciples have a front row seat to see the kingdom of God come crashing into a violently broken world. Now, thankfully for us, we don't have to hop in a boat to learn that. Uh, Today, we actually get to just look at the text, and we'll be doing that by looking at these three points. First, the storm at sea. Second, the storm at land. And then finally, the cosmic storm. So the storm at sea, the storm at land, and then the cosmic storm. So coming into the boat and crossing uh, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is utterly exhausted. He is physically worn out from days of travel uh, and healing people. He has little sleep. Uh, If you actually read the the chapters prior to where we're at today, you can see that Jesus is kind of always getting to that brink of, oh, okay, we're getting off away from people. I might get some rest. And then people follow him, and he is stirred up by his compassion and love for people. And so he stays with them. He speaks to them. He teaches them. He heals them. So Jesus is now in this boat, and he is out. He is exhausted. Uh, For those of you who've had children, this, I imagine, is probably like that first night when your kid sleeps through the night, right? That sleep that you get that you're like, oh, man, I didn't get woken up once. You're kind of surprised by it Uh, because it's so deep and so sweet. And in the midst of this deep sleep, uh, a windstorm, or in the Greek in the book of Matthew, the way that book describes this incident, uh, is an earthquake or a seismos of water and wind coming and bashing into the ship. And understandably, the disciples are freaking out, right? They are losing their marbles. Fear has gripped them, and they are convinced that they're perishing. They think they're toast. Despite all that they had seen Jesus do, all that they knew about him, their fear had gripped them, and all that had gone out the window. And I think that's especially relatable for us. Uh, One commentator points out that in the most uh, or in the midst of difficulty, we default by imagining that all is lost. As limited creatures, we have this kind of innate ability to forget what we know about ourselves, about others, and about God when fear hits us. We're actually kind of like this kid, uh, David. Some of you might recognize him. Some of you might know him better uh, by the title of the viral video that made him famous, which is called David After Dentist. Uh, I know it's old, but it's it's really applicable here. 
It's a uh, funny and kind of emotional roller coaster of a video as you witness poor David after he's gone through a dental surgery, uh, just kind of process what's all going on. And you see this wide range of emotions. At one point, he's angry. At another point, he's sad. Uh, and then towards the end of the video, the fear of his situation kind of comes to the forefront as he asks these two questions. Why is this happening to me? Is this going to be forever? And now it's a funny example of something uh, serious that we all feel when we fear things. We tend to lose our context and our connection to our past experiences and also our relationships when we face a fearful reality in front of us. We, just like the disciples, when we get afraid, can think that everything is lost, including God's great kingdom promises. All of it will be lost. And in the midst of this storm on the Sea of Galilee, we're supposed to see Jesus as a contrast to the disciples. Now, he's not just in a sleep of exhaustion, but he's also in a sleep of deep trust, abiding trust in his Father's care for him. The waves may be kind of beating against the hull and tossing the ship to and fro, but our Savior was calm, faithfully trusting in who he knows God to be. Here we see Jesus kind of fulfilling all righteousness on behalf of the fearful people in the boat, the fearful people in the pews, and the fearful person behind the microphone. Jesus is righteous here. And this, uh, in the midst of this, there's a picture of kind of uh, what in the ancient world would be the uh, epitome of chaos. It's a a water storm. Uh, For the ancient people, water was the the ultimate symbol for chaos uh, because it was uncontrollable, right? And in the midst of this chaos, the disciples come to their master to declare their fate to him and tell him that they are perishing. So arising from this deep sleep, this deep calm, you can kind of see Jesus kind of like slowly getting up from the boat, right? As a deep contrast to the disciples' fear. Jesus just brings the calm of his sleep to bear on the chaos of these waves by simply speaking to the storm. If you look in the Gospel of Mark, it actually gives us some language of what that looked like as Jesus spoke to the storm simply, peace, be still. It's almost as if Jesus was rebuking the sea as if it was a rogue agent um, of the kingdom acting out of its original design. Instead, that Jesus calls it back into obedience. One theologian kind of points out that the great storm came into conflict not only with its master, but also its commander. Now, in the midst of this calm that Jesus has brought upon the sea and to the disciples, he uses it as a great teaching moment because Jesus is a great teacher, right? And he does this, uh, he, he employs his teaching by asking the disciples a reflective question. He turns to them and asks, where is your faith? Now, I think we can often hear these words and believe that Jesus is chastising them for not having any faith. However, a Welsh minister named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that Jesus isn't making a claim of their faith's absence, but instead he's asking them, why did you not use your faith in this situation? Why did you not use what you know about me when you hit this fearful situation? So what Jesus is doing is he's actually using this storm as a discipleship or spiritual development moment for his followers. And this is really relatable for us, too. We know that Jesus often uses our trials, our conflicts to mature us, to help us learn something about him, and also to strengthen our spiritual trust in him. So he is asking them, in light of the fear that you just experienced, why did you not employ 
the faith that you've developed to help you see my lordship over this situation. And I think that in light of this, um, it it, it can be something that we can uh, flip back on ourselves, right? That when storms come, we can uh, actually struggle in our process to bring our faith to bear. Um, Keller kind of points out here uh, that we often default to thinking that faith is something that either shows up or it doesn't, right? Uh, that it's kind of like, will, will faith, you know, show up and help me, or will I be left on my own? However, Jesus' words here kind of reframe faith for us to think of it more as a muscle that is strengthened over time. And this, like Jesus' question, where is your faith, is actually an invitation for us to examine how our faith might come into new areas of our lives. It isn't a demand for perfection or a reflection of his disappointment in us. Instead, it's an invitation to a lifelong discipleship, learning to apply our faith to every situation that we come into. And I think it can be especially helpful here to remember Jesus' words about uh, faith when he talks about faith as a mustard seed. Uh, Elsewhere in the Gospels, and he's addressing the uh, disciples again for their malfunctioning faith, he says these words to them. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Hey, there's two things that are really helpful for us in that. First, that we do not enter into the storms of life with only our resources to bear. Jesus' words here about moving a mountain are his employing a common Jewish idiom, basically saying uh, that when our faith is functionally properly, you will be able to do the seemingly impossible. Kind of applying that to our text today, what this means isn't that we won't be afraid in scary situations, but it means that we'll actually be able to enter into those scary situations with a comfort and the knowledge that we do not enter them alone. We enter with the Lord of the storm, and we can take comfort even in our fear that God is at work. The second thing we see is that it's not the greatness of our faith that matters, but in whom your faith is placed in. You can kind of see Jesus here identifying faith with a mustard seed. And a mustard seed was something that the, uh, basically a first century farmer is the smallest seed that he'd ever kind of throw out there, right? And so what Jesus is doing is he's employing this image to emphasize that our faith doesn't need to be big and mighty. It doesn't mean that we have to be unfeeling stoics to be using our faith properly, Instead, actually, we are to acknowledge our fears and remember that Jesus brings all of his resources into our particular storms. This is an invitation, in other words, for us to lay our little faiths at the Lord's of the storm's feet. And so as the the storm calms, they approach land. As one storm has ceased, they approach yet another. The disciples make their way to the coast of the Gerizines, to a storm that was brewing on land. And now I think it might be tempting to kind of envision like, you know, a really sunny day at the beach. Uh, maybe there's a, some towels on the ground, you know, something like that. Like there's a peaceful arrival. But instead, I think the image that we should employ is said something more like a D-Day type landing. Employing imagery from movies like Saving Private Ryan might be helpful here to consider kind of what was spiritually going on. As Jesus arrives, he's immediately met by a legion of demons in one man. Uh, and I had to look up what a legion was because I'm not really uh, on top of my military lingo. Uh, but a legion, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a military word of an army consisting of 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers and cavalry. 
So this, uh, this is a theme that's consistent within the Gospels, which is the idea of God's kingdom coming forward into the world. And here in this scene, we see a conflict between kingdoms. A spiritual storm of sorts transpiring as Jesus breaks into a world bound by the darkness of sin. Theologian Matthew Henry actually posits that this storm that Jesus and the disciples had just encountered on the sea was actually a form of spiritual warfare trying to prevent Jesus from bringing his kingdom to this territory. So in a sense, having beaten back this naval assault, there is now a full force on land coming to meet Jesus and to destroy him. Charles Spurgeon also notes on this passage in other areas where there's demonic possession that this is kind of Satan's mock attempt at imitating the incarnation of Christ. In other words, by bringing all these spirits into a man, he is setting his forces to destroy the word made flesh. I think when looking at stories uh, about demons in the Bible, it's always helpful to remember the often quoted words of C.S. Lewis, which is this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to believe in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In other words, they like it when people don't believe in them because they feel like that's a cover for them to do whatever they want. No one will see them. And likewise, they love it when people give them too much power because it creates fear. They drive that fear into our hearts. However, this is not just an issue for materialists or magicians. It's also issues uh, for the church. Uh, Even as believers, we can tend to be at both ends of this spectrum. Uh, So folks in headier traditions, maybe like the PCA or more reformed traditions, we can tend to disavow or not really think about the spiritual forces at work in our world. Uh, Whereas traditions more on the charismatic end of the spectrum can kind of dip into an unhealthy interest in spirits. Those are broad characterizations, but I hope what you see there is we end up towards two poles, and we actually need the whole church to pull us back to a right biblical understanding about spiritual warfare. As I was preparing for this too, I found it was interesting that even among the general American population, about 50% of people believe in some sort of spiritual beings at work in our world, and another 50% don't believe in that. So it's kind of like, you know, we're destined to end up on one side of that pole. And I think this text is helpful for us because it can kind of correct regardless of where we're at, Uh, and it's a reminder of these two things. First, that there are spiritual forces and beings at work in our world that impact our relationships, that impact our lives, that impact the way that we view God, right? That is something that we have to account for. We have to talk about that. We have to know that that is there. But second, that we should always consider them as subjects to Jesus. He commands them. He is stronger than them. They have to submit to the master and commander of all spiritual forces, And we actually see that play out right here in our text. So coming into contact with this demon-possessed man, we find out that he has been driven out of the city by this legion of demons. Uh, One commentator notes that the spirits have driven this man to be wild, naked, unkempt, and ill. And as a result, all people were against him. So he was homeless. He was alone, howling and gashing himself against the rocks commentator continues on and to point out that this was a wretchedness working from the inside out. In other words, this wasn't just Satan's land battle against Jesus. It was also an attempt to destroy a man who is made in the image of God. 
Satan always wants to harm humans because we reflect him. We bear his image. Satan hates God, and because of that, he hates us too. And in this, we see a man all but stripped of that image. And this is the context into which Jesus speaks to the demons within this man, calling them to come out. As Savior bringing his kingdom forward, he restores one of his creatures who bears the image that he had placed on him. And instead of an epic battle that we might expect, we actually find a total and utter collapse of the enemy forces. Often I think we can kind of imagine uh, spiritual warfare uh, as uh, occurring between Satan and God as almost like equally powerful, equally dynamic, you know, that God and Satan are kind of in this spiritual uh, trench warfare where every now and then one of them takes a little bit of land and the other one takes a little bit more land back and forth. Or if you're a boxer or into boxing, you can think about like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, right? It's like you never know which one's going to win. Um, and personally, I like to blame that idea on movies like The Exorcist or The Conjuring. Uh, and I also just want to blame those movies too for the reason why I run up the stairs after I turn off the lights in the basement. <laughs> just like our fear of physical storms, we can also be incredibly fearful of the spiritual battles at hand. But this collapse reminds us that the power clearly lies in God's favor. So much so that we actually see the demons begging Jesus for them to be placed into pigs instead of facing the destruction of the abyss, which is their ultimate end. And knowing that Jesus is God and has authority, they ask him for permission to enter the pigs, and Jesus obliges we also have to deal with the fact that uh, though Cincinnati is uh, the city of flying pigs, the Gerizines might have been the first ones to do it. I had to do it, I'm sorry. <laughs> so the flying pigs, they're off the cliff, they're destroyed, and once again, this demonstrates that, de- that demonic activity is always geared towards destruction of God's good creation. And Jesus uses this as a reminder to us and the Gerizines that there is no playing ball with demons. There is only destruction if we do so. So what does this mean for us, you know, at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday? What do flying pigs and spiritual land battles have to do with us? And quite simply, I think this application takes the application from the first point a little bit further. Because it asks us to consider the power of God in the context of our fears. That we should ask ourselves, what will I look to when I'm outmatched? When I'm exhausted and I don't have the energy to show up in the way that I want to, where will I look? When illness strikes and I don't know how to wake up the next day and deal with the pain again and kind of keep pushing on, where's my hope coming from? When the pain and anguish or disappointment of life hits, where are we going to look? Today's passage, I think, is a reminder of the extent of Christ's lordship. That following him isn't a promise that storms won't come, and it isn't a way to avoid storms either, but it's actually a a way that we get to know that when they do, you can count on your Savior to show up in them. That no matter if your storm kind of comes in a physical sense or in a spiritual attack at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday, you can take your fear to the Lord of the storm. You can use that little faith that you have, even if it's the size of a mustard seed, and lay it at his feet. Uh, James Kessler, who's a pastor in our denomination, uh, says this on the passage, and if you're not listening at all so far, You can just listen to this. I could just read this and walk off. This is great. (laughs) James Kessler notes that our our, our Lord delights in these opportunities to calm both the storm without and the storm within. Jesus calms the storm. Calming the storm isn't about the mic drop. 
It's about picking up little faiths. In that calm, they see, the disciples see, that they had not been swallowed up by the storm, but by the Christ. Little faiths have to learn that they tread waters not of human competency, but of mercy. That we enter into storms with God's mercy at our hand. Our Savior delights to remind us at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday that his resources and his presence are ours. And these are are really great reminders of Jesus' power as we face storms and when they come. Uh, But I think a question that we might all have, too, is what do we do with storms that are ongoing right now, right? What do we do with storms that just feel too much for us? Uh, I actually think in the... uh, Musical La Miz and Fantine kind of sings that song, I Dreamed a Dream. Uh, There's some really helpful words to kind of capture that feeling that we have often, and this is the lines. But there are dreams that cannot be, and there are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. So what do we do in areas where it seems that God has not yet taken the stronghold or, the, or dominated the evil one's reign of terror. What do we do in those areas? Who could blame us for asking, why is this happening to me? Will this be forever? And for those parts of our souls, I think it's helpful to see this story in the context of the rest of the Gospels. Jesus doesn't just calm the storm and heal the demon-possessed man and kind of hang it up. His exit, actually, at the end of this, of this scene, has one intended purpose, the fulfillment of the coming of God. The storm of conflict that occurred on the sea and the shore was kind of heading towards cosmic proportions. During Jesus' ministry, he healed many people. Uh, he raised people from the dead, and he also gave people hope with his teaching. But if his earthly ministry was all that there was, we might be pretty impressed by what he did. Uh, and actually, we might should actually be pretty jealous too, right? Because he helped some people, but he didn't help me. But no, Jesus' ministry was far more than miracles, wise teachings, or just mere inspiration. So the heart of Jesus' mission is nothing short of calming the cosmic storm that crashes into all of our lives by defeating Satan, sin, and death. Now, battles can take many shapes and forms. For instance, we saw kind of the frontal assault of what happened with the storm at sea, and we see also the storm at land. But some battles are covert, are subtle, are behind enemy lines, and this is the tactic that the Lord of Storms takes. In the incarnation, we actually see our God entering into the spiritually war-torn country of our bodies, our relationships, our cultures, our governments, And almost as an agent of the kingdom of God, he kind of winds his way through Israel, winning skirmish after skirmish as he heads his way to the decisive battle. So what we see at the cross is our Lord throwing himself into the cosmic battle for humanity. As Jesus jumps into the cosmic storm, Satan kind of believes that he will finally kill God and he can finally reign over those people that bear his image. Yet Satan's defeated, realizing too late that the wisdom of God has once again won out and foiled him. That in a single event, Jesus' death for our sins and the sacrifice of his righteous life removes us from any ultimate captivity to Satan, to sin, and to death. As Jesus enters into the storm of death and comes out victorious, we are made new in his righteousness. This is the victory for those who are in Christ, and this is the image of what theologians refer to as Christus Victor, or Christ victorious, the one who won the battle for us. 
If you couldn't tell, I got this from Mike Privatera. And in an ancient practice that we'd often see between two combative forces was the selection of kind of a single champion or representative that would go forward and fight the other side's representative or champion. And the idea was to kind of spare the, the weaker fighters so that this stronger fighter could go win the battle and win the day. And that's what we see at the cross. You can see Jesus as our champion representative going out to fulfill all righteousness and to lead a host of captives free. Christ is the one who won our victory in our stead, doing what we could never do and granting us freedom from Satan, from sin and death. So in light of this, what do we think about our very real storms, right? They are real. We experience them every day in our lives. They are just vestiges of a fallen kingdom. The real pain that they inflict on us, they're there. But their ultimate power is broken. And if you're in Christ, you are not defined by your storms, nor are you separated from your Savior or his people. All lingering skirmishes are heading towards their conclusion. And through Jesus, this is true for you and will be spoken over you at the end of time. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is our hope. The idea that our Lord is slumbering or indifferent couldn't be further from the truth. But the question still remains, what do we do as we wait? What do we do as we get hit by one storm after another over and over again until the end? I think we can kind of see three things that this passage uh, invites us to see uh, about how we can navigate those storms. Uh, and they all occur between the disciples, this healed man, and then the people of the Gerasenes. And you can note that the common theme amongst all three of them is fear. They are afraid. Faced with Jesus' power in the midst of the storm, they all have different reactions, but the core experience is fear. So we're going to take those one at a time and see how we can apply those. So for the disciples, you see that their storm causes them to ask a question, right? They ask, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Uh, one commentator kind of summed it up by saying, who is this guy, right? They are there, and they're like, I don't know what's going on. This is nuts, right? And they want to know who is this man that we have in the boat with us. So confronted with a storm and seeing Jesus, it causes them to ask questions about him. And it's interesting to note Jesus' response throughout all the Gospels when the disciples ask him questions about who he is. Despite all of the evidence that they've seen, despite all that they've heard him say, they still have questions. And he doesn't ridicule them. He doesn't kick them out. He doesn't say, all right, you're out of the 12. Bye. That was one too many questions. But instead, over and over again, he invites them and encourages them to employ what they know about them. He reminds them and invites them, bring this to bear in, in areas of your life where you have questions about me. For us, I, I think this is an encouragement to ask our questions to Jesus, to go to him in his word, to speak to him in prayer. But also, it's important to think about going to our community groups. It's important to confide in friends, to speak with our elders and our deacons. Your questions are not foolish. They're not negligent. And you and I are just like the disciples, right? We're just guys in the boat saying, who is this guy? I want to know. And Jesus wants to tell you. 
It's also important to remember a couple weeks ago, too, Josh preached about John the Baptist and his doubts that he brought to Jesus. And Jesus says of him, there's no one greater born of women than John the Baptist, right? So basically, he's the best I've ever made. And Jesus welcomes his doubts. If he's welcoming his doubts, his questions, how much more will he welcome ours? Second, we also see the man uh, who is healed from demon possession uh, now sitting in his right mind before Jesus. So in in a sense, knowing Jesus' goodness, the man is begging to stay with him. He's afraid of leaving Jesus' presence. And who can't relate to that, right? To be able to kind of sit by your Savior and say, just come on back. I don't want to go anywhere else, right? There's an ache, I think, in our hearts for that. I don't want to go anywhere else. Just stay here. Stay with me. But Jesus has something to do. He has a mission he's moving towards. But he doesn't abandon this man and leave him alone. He actually invites him into that mission. He says, you are with me in my mission. Come now, go. Go to your community. Tell them about who I am. Tell them what God has done. And I think this gives us a vision for what God wants us to do with our storms. Uh, Surely this man, this demon-possessed man who is now healed, uh, there was still a lot of storms going on in his life, right? He had beaten and bloodied his body for a very long time, we find out, right? He has been driven away from people for a very long time, meaning his relationships are probably pretty torn. There's probably not a lot of trust there, right? Though he had been healed, he was still very much in a storm. And in this storm, Jesus invites him to consider that there might be kingdom work to be done to enter back into those strained relationships and to report where the true change in his life had come from. And Jesus invites us to do the same as well. Uh, Whether you're currently in a storm or uh, one has just passed, I think we can use them as an occasion to proclaim the goodness of God's kingdom. Uh, This doesn't mean kind of walking around uh, really confident and unfeeling. I actually think sometimes the most uh, faithful proclamation of this can be just telling a friend, yeah, but the grace of God, I'm just barely hanging on. It's God's power. He's one who sustains in trial. That's a faithful statement to make. However, other times, your victory over a particular storm can be really encouraging to another person. So, for example, if you have faced and overcome an addiction, that can be an incredibly helpful to somebody in the throes of addiction trying to overcome it. That there is hope. That God does show up. That change is possible. Also, if you're, uh, for example, have gone through a grief, right? You've lost a loved one. You've had to grieve that and you've been able to make some ground in that, that process, how helpful is that to, for somebody who is in the midst of grief to hear that and to have somebody to enter into that grief with them? As a body of Christ, we need brothers and sisters to share what God is doing in their storms, whether it's concluded or whether it's ongoing. And finally, almost as a form of warning, we see the reaction from the towns of the people, uh, for the townspeople of the Gerizines to Jesus. Uh, The Gerizines, uh, seeing Jesus' power and the way he works, are struck with terror. uh, And their terror, and in their terror, they want nothing to do with him. They're like, get gone, get out of here, and bye-bye, right? You're doing too much, man. They don't want him there anymore. And some commentators say that, oh, it could be because they're really scared of his power, right? He did something pretty magnificent that was frightening to them. And then others say that they didn't like that it cost them economically, that all these pigs had died and it had cost them something. And whether it's one of those two reasons, they ultimately just didn't like the way Jesus worked, and they wanted him gone. And I I find this to be very familiar, very relatable for us too, right? Uh, We don't like the way Jesus works either. Sometimes he works too fast. He changes a lot of things in our lives. We're like, please slow down, right? This is uncomfortable. 
I just need a minute, right? Other times, he moves very slowly, and we want him to pick up the pace, right? We tend to get in a lot of disagreement with how Jesus works. So in summary, what we see in the Lord of Storms is someone who's ultimately disruptive to our limited and fallen perspectives. Jesus shows us a God who kind of strikes fear and all. Remember, the common reaction of all three of these parties is fear. The disciples fear and ask, who is this guy? The healed man is afraid to leave the Lord's presence. And then the Gerizines are afraid, and they say, get out of here. So for us, in our storms, what's our hope? Is our hope that we would make the right decision and not be like the Gerizines? That we'd be more like the disciples? That we'd be more like the healed man? No. Our hope is in Jesus, the disruptor, right? The Lord of storms. That he would so disrupt our hearts. That he would so disrupt it with the storm of his great conquest so that our hearts, too, might be discipled into the calm of Christ by hearing his words, peace, be still. And also, let's not be fooled. Jesus' ministry to the mistaken Gerizines had not concluded with his exit from their shores. Little did they know that he was actually heading to Jerusalem about to unleash a disruptive storm of kingdom power. The cosmic storm of sin and death was about to be replaced by the cosmic storm of grace and truth. This disruptive storm directed by the Lord of storms was their hope and is our hope as well. Let's pray. Father, you know we are fearful people. You know the ways in which we are beaten and bruised by a fallen world and how a lot of the times that can be because of our own foolishness too. And yet you do not despise us. Instead, you call yourself the good shepherd, the one who knows his sheep by their name and calls them his children and his friends. Lord, help us to find our hope in you when we are fearful. Help us to know that we enter into the storms of life not dependent on our own resources, but that we have the Lord of storms with us. Help us to know that you not only unite us to yourself, but you also unite us to your church. Help us, Lord, to have a vision for how we can use our stories to love our neighbors and help us to remember that you are at work. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.